Welcome to the Deal Machine Real Estate Investing Podcast, where we help ambitious W-2 employees who want to leave their job in the next 12 months, earn a million dollars per year, drive their dream car, pursue their passions, and take control of their life. We'll actually teach you by interviewing people who have replaced their W-2 income through the proven business model of wholesaling real estate, a way to earn big checks by finding discounted real estate and passing it off to an investor who has money and can give you a $25,000 finder's fee for finding the deal. We're going to give you two weekly interviews plus one expert-led masterclass in front of a live Q&A audience of the Deal Machine community, people who are trying to get this journey done themselves. My co-host is Ryan Haywood, whose sales job was cut when his commissions were cut in 2019, so he quit. And his wife was pregnant at the time, so he actually took a 14-day wholesaling challenge and made 8500 bucks and has gone on to do 400 deals since then in St. Joseph, Missouri. I'm David Lecco, and I created a process for finding off-market deals that has helped people close 10,000 deals in all 50 states. Can you imagine that most employers give you two whole weeks of vacation per year? Well, our guest today has built a life he loves, and he knew he made it when he was closing a real estate deal on the Nile in Egypt. And these types of deals are bringing him $7,500 on the first one, and he's done over 329 deals. And these are deals where you don't have to have a huge down payment to make this type of real estate investing. So I know you guys are going to love this episode. The Deal Machine REI Podcast. Everything you need to know to get started in real estate investing. And Mike DeHaan, I know that you have been in real estate for a few years, and this is our first time connecting. You made $7,500 on your very first deal. Can you tell me about how you found this deal? Yeah. So this first deal we found was from a mailer, right? So we sent out a bunch of letters to different people. And the funny thing is, is when we started that, we were very firmly of the belief that it's not going to work, right? Because who responds to sort of like tabloid marketing letters, right? That they get in the mail. And we were shocked when leads started coming in after our first batch. And it took us about three months to close our first one because we didn't know how to do sales, you know, how to talk to these kind of sellers that we were marketing to, which are typically people with distress. But ultimately, you know, we had a group that we were working with that was coaching us through this whole process. And they encouraged us to keep following up with people, keep talking to the people that do call in. And then sure enough, we ended up being at the right, uh, in the right place at the right time for this person. And we were able to get a signed contract. We found another buyer who was just interested in buying the contract from us via an assignment, which basically means you just sell the paper and you don't actually have to close on the property yourself. You just sell it for a fee. And we made $7,500. And the total process from when we got assigned to when we were getting paid was about two and a half weeks. Two, okay, wow. Okay, so you did spend some... So this is like a common thing that I always thought. I always hear you, you don't have to spend any money in order to do this strategy called wholesaling real estate because you just find a rundown house and then you pass it off to an investor who does have money, they pay you that finder's fee, which in your case was 7,500 bucks. However, it sounds like you were sending direct mail. So that does have some cost, right? You, you can get deals through word of mouth or through door knocking, uh, but typically you're spending more of your time there, which is a great beginner strategy. So do you remember maybe how much you spent on your mail marketing in order to get that $7,500 deal? 
Yeah. So for this first one, so we had a couple things going against us, right? Primarily it was early 2020. So COVID had started, which made things get real funny for a little bit, right? Um, so we were about $30,000 in the hole when we got this first deal signed. Um, and, you know, we were spending about five to $7,000 a month running our systems and sending out these letters. But, you know, that $7,500 was kind of the tip of the iceberg because shortly after that, doing that follow-up process, we started closing deals on a more regular basis. And we were back in the green. I think we made $50,000 over the six weeks following that. Got it. So you guys had money saved up and you were using some pretty big marketing strategies. You guys weren't holding back from investing in marketing. Well, I'm really glad that worked out and you ended up making $50,000. Did you say that was in like a month period or so? That was the following six weeks. So we had 7,500 for the first one. And then over the weeks after that, we had a, I believe it was a $13,500 deal, a uh, $11,000 deal. And then we had our largest, our first, like I would say big deal, which was 28,500. Gotcha. Um, so, well, yeah. What type of list did you end up pulling, by the way? Um, I mean, all the traditional stuff that you see, I think a, a thing that people mess up in this business is they try to get cute and they try to do this stuff that's really complicated. And honestly, we've built our entire business, even up to now, just focusing on the traditional list of, you know, bankruptcies, liens, vacant properties with absentee owners. Um, and then, you know, failed MLS deals have been really good as well over the, over the years, especially now that the market's slowed down a little but we don't do anything super crazy. We just do the, even the most boilerplate stuff that you can find on any list providing service. Gotcha. So it's absentee owners that you guys target, maybe with high equity and then that's it. For the most part. And then like the, our bread and butter, like most of our deals come from the financially distressed list. So like bankruptcies, liens, and like tax delinquencies, that sort of stuff. Sometimes absentee owners, sometimes owner occupants, but the people that, you know, need the equity from their house quickly, those are the ones that are going to be most likely to sell you at a discount. Gotcha. Yeah, absolutely. That's one thing I've learned is you're not convincing somebody to sell you their house, but somebody really wants to sell their house because there is a problem in their life. There's a problem with the house too. And then they can't sell the house right away on the market. So they just want to get the cash that they, they can uh, without the hassle of putting it on the market, waiting a long time or fixing it up before they can put it on the market. So I'm really glad you mentioned that. Can you tell us like, what were you doing before the wholesaling? Cause you, you actually had some money saved up. So you, I'm interested to hear what your background was. Yeah. So I didn't start getting into real estate until I was in my late twenties. Um, so, you know, growing up, I went very traditional. I went to college, went and got an engineering degree because that was what I was supposed to do. Right. I had engineers in the family. It had high W-2 potential. And, you know, my mom was very proud that she could go and say that she had her son was an engineer, right? So that's what I started with. And then I actually worked as an engineer for five years um, out in the Seattle area, worked at a couple different places. I worked at Boeing for a few years. But the funny thing is, is like, even from when I was in school, I knew that that wasn't a good fit for me, but I kind of just ground through it because that was the expectation. And then once I started working, Literally from day one, I hated what I was doing, but, you know, it had security. I had a lot of upside. Um, and as a result of me being so unhappy, I got really into, you know, the financial independence movement and fire. But 
doing it kind of the opposite way of how I do it now, where I'm like, how can I increase my earnings? It was how can I live on as little money as possible, right? So I would do all sorts of stuff to make extra money. You know, I like started working at a, at a gym, doing, you know, doing coaching at CrossFit classes and things like that just to make extra money. I would sell stuff on eBay. You know, I would do like task-based side hustles, doing Uber and that sort of stuff. And literally the goal was to just save and put as much stuff into stocks and other things so that I could hopefully retire when I'm like in my 50s instead of when I'm, you know, 68. And this is, you know, mm. when I was 23, trying to retire when you're 50 is just a horrible sort of mindset to be in. Um, but I did that for five years and it gave me a, a nest egg. So in 2018, after five years, I was just so miserable in what I was doing that I decided I needed to do anything else. I didn't know what I was going to do. Real estate wasn't even on my radar at that point, but I just burned the boats and I quit my engineering job. And, you know, I had a six figure salary at 27 years old at that point. And I was like, I just need to not do this. So I left and I spent the next year, you know, working at a gym almost full time um, and then driving for Uber in the evenings um, and just trying to figure out what I wanted to do. And real estate came around mostly because it was just a reoccurring topic in every business and wealth generation book that I read. Because I knew that I wanted to make real money. I knew that I wanted financial independence. I wanted passive income. And real estate was like the number one thing that just kept coming up over and over and over again. So that's what kind of like led me to that. Got it. Yeah. So FIRE is financial independence, retire early. Mm -hmm. So you wanted to retire when you were 50. Yeah. And it sounds like you're well on your way there, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. I, I, I technically reached financial independence through passive income um, not long after I turned 30. So, okay. and, that, and that was about two years after I got started in real estate. So it happened relatively quickly um, due to the fact that I learned these wholesaling tactics, which allowed me to get better deals and increase my vertical income, my actual like, you know, direct income as well as the horizontal income. Mm. So I'm curious, what has real estate allowed you to do? It seems like you've upgraded your lifestyle since you were being so restrictive before to save a ton of money all the time. Yeah, I mean, it's honestly, it's at this point, it's made the world my oyster for the most part in terms of like what I want my ideal life to be. Um, you know, I'm lucky in the way that I don't have a lot of major wants in terms of like material things. I like to travel. I like to have life experiences. I'm a classic millennial like that. But that combined with my um, habits that I developed when I was trying to save money so I could retire when I was 50 has made it relatively easy to replace my my monthly spending. And we've we've leveled up a, a few things that we do. So, you know, now I have like a house cleaner. I have someone that comes and mows my lawn. I live in a, a pretty nice new house. But if you look at that compared to the, some of the crazy expense and liabilities other people tend to stack up, we don't have that. So, you know, I was able to achieve it quickly. And now, you know, we travel a lot. I traveled for 12 weeks out of the country last year in 2022. I'm headed to Europe here in, a, um, I guess, three days for two weeks. I'm going to Japan for three weeks in November. I'm going to Southeast Asia next spring for a month. Um, you know, and then even throughout the year, we do all sorts of like small trips around the U.S. to different events and those sort of things. And the benefit is because I know how to make money, having to splurge for like one-time events or like things that aren't going to be reoccurring is really easy to justify because I know that it will eventually come back. 
And I also know that yeah. my monthly nod is covered just through the passive income. And one thing you said, uh, the traveling is a big one. But one thing you said that struck a chord with me was that you actually hired a cleaner. And that was a luxury that you now enjoy. And I'll tell you what, man, I grew up in a 1,200 square foot house. My parents still live there. Good upbringing, but we didn't have those types of luxuries. And there was a while there where I felt like, for some reason, like it would be degrading if I had somebody come in and clean my bathroom. But what I've realized now is that some people genuinely love cleaning and they are much better at it and they are trying to actively build a cleaning business. So why would I not hire them to do the thing that they love and they're trying to scale so that I can just continue doing more of what I love, right? Maybe I could do an extra podcast recording. Maybe I have more energy to be creative. So that was a little personal journey uh, that you said that I mean tracks with, with me very much. Yeah, and it's opportunity cost as well. You know, it's, it's not even about what you love, but it's you can realistically make a lot more money in the entire day you would spend cleaning your house. You know, you pay someone a couple hundred dollars to come do it. Or like when you have a business, I can use that to get another contract where I'm going to make ten, fifteen, twenty thousand dollars $20,000. Yeah. The and, upside potential there is massive. And hoarding your money doesn't help anyone. It doesn't help the economy. Spending your money on people that are wanting to do services helps them. It helps the economy and it helps me. So it feels good. So I've, I've definitely come around and come a long way, Mike. Yeah, I'll admit. It's funny how those things, like Megan and I feel the same way. It's like, uh, we can clean our house just fine. But it's so much, like it takes the amount of time it takes off of your plate to do what you want to do. If you wanted to go and have fun playing with the kids, like in my case, it's like, I don't want to, have to deal with okay it's going to take me three and a half hours to clean the house or i could just pay somebody that's it's really the cost of what it costs you to actually hire somebody to do it versus the time loss cost that you that you would have to do it it's but to get to that point where you can actually acknowledge okay yeah it is actually worth more money to just hire it out and let somebody else do it mowing the yard i love to mow my yard though like I put great pride in Yeah, see, that's it's funny. That's a thing that a lot of my friends kind of give me grief for because they also, I just hate it. It's just not me. Well, yeah. Mike, I look forward to it. So you got that first deal, made 7,500 bucks. You've done 329. What would you say is the average type of profit that you're making on a deal like that? So our average profit is 17,500. Um, and our average cost per deal is about $3,200. So our typical return on ad spend is just under 6X. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah, so it, it works out pretty well. And, you know, we've we've proven that across the country. So uh, how, as we've scaled this, we've scaled it into this partnership style model where we have partners all across the country so that we can, it was our way of um, alleviating kind of some of the risk as the market started to turn over last year is we just spread out everywhere. We have partners everywhere and we, you know, we split things with them and they're our local market experts. Um, and we found very interestingly that cost per deal um, is the same in most markets um, that we've, we've been into. And the profits, once you take into account how competitive all the different markets get, is actually very similar as well. Um, so even like, you know, large and competitive markets like Jacksonville and Phoenix, aren't that different from some of the smaller markets like or the cheaper markets like Memphis or some of the more traditional investor markets that we've got. How do you calculate your average cost per deal? Like what things are you considering 
aside from the mail costs, what things do you add in that give you that cost? So that's just our um, our marketing cost that we consider on that, right? So we have mail and okay. then we also run online advertising and we do SMS marketing to like a wide net. And basically we look at our total costs for that for the entire month, look by the number of deals that we close. So that doesn't account for any of our staff overhead or systems or those sort of things. But that's also because that's very variable depending on how people set up their business. Sure. Please open up your podcast app right now and leave us a review and let us know what you thought of this episode. It means so much because the reviews help us get in front of more people. And the more people we can get in front of, the more we can help them achieve financial freedom. And we also get more energy to put more content out like this to help you. So by leaving us a review, it will give you more content to come to help you along in your journey. Thank you so much. Mike, I know that you said your biggest failure is not listening to your heart and doing what was expected of you. Can you expand on that a little bit? That seemed like pretty deep. Yeah. So, I mean, it's it's funny. As I've reflected on, I guess, my adulthood so far, that period of my life from when I was 18 and I started going to college and then I ultimately left my engineering career, um, you know, it was about 10 years. And that entire period of time, I knew that that wasn't what I was going to do with my life, but I just kept marching through it because it was what every single person, you know, that was in my circle expected me to do. And if I were to look back at that, not necessarily that I would have needed to go into entrepreneurship or, or anything else, but my biggest failure there is that I didn't just listen to my gut at all. You know, not only that, but I completely overrode it and I should have explored other things outside of the engineering path that I was doing, you know, be that business, be that computer science, anything else. Cause I literally did zero exploration even. So I failed myself by not even giving myself the opportunity to learn about who I was and instead just going through who everyone else wanted me to be. Right. And you know, it, it did give me the financial ability to get where I'm at now because I did have that little base, but I also think I could have done that without being unhappy for most of my twenties. Gotcha. Well, it sounds like you made some sacrifices that really paid off, and I'm so glad you came around to doing something that really gets you excited. Yeah, yeah, thanks. I mean, it's it's been a, it's funny. It's one of those things that the people that know me from beforehand, they like to comment about how quickly it happened. But I mean, it's obviously not easy, right? And, you know, people have asked me, like, how was I able to go from kind of getting started in this because I really only started doing real estate in late 2019 to now I, you know, I've made multi seven figures myself. I have a very strong rental portfolio. So it's only been a few years. And, you know, my answer to how it happened was it was being very intentional, right. And spending 12 hours a day working for usually six to seven days a week for, you know, four years, right. The period of time doing real estate and the time before that, trying to figure myself out and sure I've been able to travel and other sort of things in there, but that's basically the time that I didn't spend doing luxury things before that. And, you know, the, the great thing about business is as it grows, as you sort of build your bank account, you do have some more freedom. But I think to get that initial foundation built, that is honestly what it takes is that level of dedication and work. Amazing. Well, let's transition into the guilt-free profit segment of the podcast. And I've got some quick questions for you uh, that I want to answer that made me feel guilty about starting a business, um, but I changed my mind. So the first question is, can you work a side hustle if you have a W-2 job? 
I felt very loyal to my W-2. Now I'm curious, what's the ethics of taking a call for your side hustle while you're at that job, for example, Mike? That's, I mean, that is a great question. I think that is something that a lot of people battle with. And I would honestly, if I look at what my own, um, I guess, biggest failure is, right? And I sort of reflect that for other people. I would say you're honestly doing yourself an injustice to not work a side hustle while you're at your W-2 job. Because ultimately, here's the thing. Companies, they have the company's best interests at heart. Mm -hmm. You know, you can be extremely loyal to a company. If the company no longer has a place for you, they're going to part ways. And that can happen very, very quickly. You know, and it's not uncommon for people to be kind of like the heart and soul of a company. And then all of a sudden, they're told that they no longer have a position there. I mean, one of my good friends here, he works for a startup um, and they ousted the founder, you know, that had been there for like eight years. Like they had a board and the founder that had put his entire life into it was let go by the board, you know? So even if you're the top person there, like you're not invincible. Um, you know. So I would say not only can you work a side hustle, but you probably should. But I would say that make sure that that side hustle is something that's going to get you where you want to go. I think where a lot of people get into trouble is they're doing these low value side hustles. They're doing things that aren't exactly driving them forward, aren't really making them money, aren't enhancing them as a person. And that's where it's getting kind of weird because I feel like that just becomes a distraction at that point for, you know, low income. Gotcha. What are the, what are the ethics though on answering a call while you're working in that W2 job? Like what is okay, what what is not okay? Yeah, so I would, in my opinion, I would say that's kind of case by case, right? If you're a ER surgeon nurse, right, and you're going to take a call to talk to a seller, that's a little weird. In fact, you probably get fired for doing that. But if you're working a corporate engineering job and someone's going to call you because they want to sell you a house, absolutely take that call. Like is your electrical design going to be heard if it's delayed for 15 minutes? No. Right. Yeah, what are the tasks that you're doing in the W-2? And are those, it's kind of like the concept of homeschooling versus schooling in the public. Like if you talk to people who homeschool, I can testify, you spend like three hours a day. But in the public school system, you're spending eight hours a day. And half of that or more than half of that is spent on entertaining the kids or having the kids recess, lunch, doing finding time fillers. That's the same, I, in my opinion, I felt like in the W2 world, I could get everything I needed to get done in like three hours. And then the rest of the time, it's like, well, I'm just going to do some extra stuff and, or you just continue to work towards making them more money. But I, to me, I don't see it as a big problem as long to your point, Mike, as long as you're not a heart surgeon and uh, just about ready to go on the operating table. So, Shifting another gear, let's talk about, this is kind of a dirty word for some people, the word gentrification. Is it a bad thing? I mean, everything comes down to intent, right? If your intent with gentrification is to drive out certain people, which, I mean, there are people that are like this, right? You've seen this with gerrymandering and other things that go on in the political sphere. But if your intent is mm -hmm. to drive out a certain population, it's definitely a bad thing, right? If your intent is to provide a net positive quality of life for the majority of the population, no, I don't think so. I think, I mean, in in 
you know, get, getting political on it, right? Where stuff gets weird is when we start to try to keep things like not awesome for a small segment of the population. When in reality, if you do make an area better, you do gentrify it, more people, like a higher percentage of people in an area will get value from it. It's like, mm-hmm. yeah, you need to look at the bigger picture. And I don't know, I'm, I'm a very firm believer that you should do anything that you can to not you know, be at like the lower end of the spectrum in pretty much any part of your life, right? You shouldn't be on the lower right in like a fitness perspective, financial perspective, you know, whatever else. Um, and you can only help people so much along the way. And by not right. provide, not increasing value for all the people that are trying to make strides forward, I think that's a larger disservice than trying to keep things, um, I guess, like lower quality so that the lower section of the population can enjoy it. Yeah, that's essentially why for our business model, we've never strayed away from like the parts of town an investor wouldn't want to be in. I'm like, I don't care if there's, if I can get a house that's cheaper because it's in that part of town and I can make it nicer, bringing the value up for everybody, like I'm going to do it. And hopefully it inspires everybody in the neighborhood. Um, What about entrepreneurship? Let's talk about that. Would you recommend that for everyone? No. Definitely not. Um, it is that that is an opinion that I've probably changed on over the last year, as I have shifted from being a like a real estate investor for the most part to being an entrepreneur. Um, I would say that everyone should have some level of like entrepreneurship, like in them, right? In terms of like mm-hmm. what they try to do for themselves, um, and like you know how they sort of view their money. I think there's a lot of value in sort of learning how to make money or how to identify opportunities from an entrepreneuristic perspective. But I don't think that being a full-time entrepreneur is right for most people. Um, It has a lot of variability, not only in like the money part of it, but also to just like the mental health. You already have a country with people with mental health issues. Probably the worst thing you could do is take those people and make them entrepreneurs because as you guys know, like the Peaks and valleys are massive when you have the yeah. stability. And not only that, but when you're not only in charge of yourself, but you're in charge of 15, 20 people that work for your company, that's a whole other level of stress that most people don't understand until they get there. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. What about what about the the sustainability of the entrepreneur lifestyle? Like a lot of a lot of entrepreneurs have a very different lifestyle than the average person is that a sustainable lifestyle i think it all comes down to identity right you know there's that old saying that entrepreneurs are the only people that'll work 80 hours to avoid working 40 (laughs) and i think that you need to make that your expectation and your mentality around it right because i mean as you guys can attest when you become a an entrepreneur and you embrace that lifestyle work-life balance isn't really a thing anymore it kind of is just who you are Right. Yeah. And like for me personally, it becomes a part of life. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and for me, I don't have a lot of separation from work and the rest of my life because I enjoy it. And I've also structured my life so that they're able to kind of be intertangled. You know, it's like we talked mm-hmm. about uh, at the beginning of the show, how I signed for that Neil, what I was uh, that deal while I was on the Nile. Um, some people would say that sounds terrible that I have to work on on that trip. To me, that was the coolest thing I've ever done. Because I'm like, I'm, yeah. I'm currently in Egypt 
you know, cruising along. There's like these farmers over here. There's temples over there. And I just made almost as much money as I used to make, like as a salaried employee. Right. right? You know, and, and it's a funny thing that seems impossible until you do it. And then you're like, why do I need to separate my work life and my, the rest of my life? Because this is awesome. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm with you on that. Well, that's our time, guys. I really appreciate you guys going through those questions. Um, Loved your answers. For you guys listening, what do you guys think about gentrification? I think that's mostly like the misunderstood term uh, of all these. Let us know in the Spotify Q&A section in the Spotify app uh, or hit up Ryan at Heritage Home Investments on Instagram. Please make sure you're subscribed. A lot of you guys are listening and not subscribed. I can see you. And make sure that you guys leave us a review if you like this episode. Or if you have any feedback, let us know. And we will see you next time on the Deal Machine Real Estate Investing Podcast. Also, Mike wants you to know the best way to reach out to Mike is on Instagram at Mike underscore invests. We really appreciate you being here, Mike. Thank you so much. Awesome. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the Deal Machine Real Estate Investing Podcast. Please leave us a review and follow along wherever you're listening to your podcast.